Oh, hey, y'all. It's Monday, and we are back to make the show gay again because that straight stuff is not going to fly anymore. Today, we were talking about the Emmys last night, and then Bellamy Young is to talk about Prodigal Son. You stick right there, and we will see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford, she's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. And we're now, we're back. We're gay. We are. We're queer, we're wiping the straightness off this. It feels Wipe it off. It's actually, it's Bi-Visibility Day. Yes. So happy Bi-Visibility Day to all my fellow bisexuals out there. There we go. Your icon is here. She's alive (laughs) and rested from our trip to Iowa. Yeah. Which was such a lovely time. It was. It was so great. Should we jump into some tweets I I think we should just do it. Yeah. Here's a tweet from Firelight. A black trans military veteran is hosting a presidential debate. Let's just absorb that history. Hashtag LGBTQ forum. Mm, and here's a tweet from Ruby Kramer. Elizabeth Warren begins her appearance at tonight's LGBTQ forum in Iowa by reading the names of 18 trans women of color who have been killed this year. It is time for a president of the United States of America to say their names, she says. Ooh, that was a moment on stage. I know a you were moment. in the basement <laughs> doing interviews during this time, but I was backstage. I was not on stage with Senator Warren. But when she got out there, she pulled out a piece of paper, and a lot of us were like, what's about to happen? And she's like, I'm going to show you all what I'm going to do as president. And she was reading them, and I was sitting next to Isis King, uh, the very famous model who is trans and was on America's Next Top Model, and she goes, girl, she's reading the names, she's reading the names. And she got so emotional. And we all backstage were like, wow, this is, it felt like a moment. And like Mm -hmm. the whole crowd just erupted in a way I did not expect. It was just really special. And the whole night felt special like that, which was really cool. Yeah, I mean, I have to say one of the funny things uh, about it is that I didn't really get to watch that much of the actual (laughs) forum itself because we were talking to six of the candidates Mm -hmm. um, in interviews that y'all will get to see uh, through the course of this week and and pieces of those interviews. But I I did have to like stop myself and remind myself that this is a really remarkable moment to Mm -hmm. get to be having these really nuanced conversations, Um, not just like about the broad strokes of of policies around LGBTQ people and culture, but about really specific stuff. Yeah, and also to get personal with it. You know, I sat down with Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who you'll see that interview that Alex did with him later this week. Hopefully you've seen clips of it on Twitter. Um, And I got to sit there with another gay man and say, yo, if you're president of the United States, (laughs) you will be banned from giving blood because we are gay men and there is still a ban there. What's that like? And to see, to be in a room where other queer people lean forward because they're also banned from something makes these things that we've seen presidential candidates talk in the abstract about become real because we've never seen queer people so at the forefront of these conversations, especially running for president. Mm-hmm. So now when we talk about LGBTQ issues on the on the trail, there's someone who's leading the polls. It's like, mm-hmm. you're talking about me. Hi, I'm, I'm being discriminated mm-hmm. against. And that's what that night was so much about was that like, we're not abstract things anymore. Mm-hmm. We're not silence in the shadows. We're able to hold a forum where, you know, it was the number one trending topic on Twitter mm-hmm. for a while globally mm-hmm. in the United States. And that's incredible. That's amazing. And it just shows you the power of our movement right now, yeah. where we're going. And it's not enough just to say you want LGBTQ equality. Yeah. You, now you have to actually understand yeah. what that means and like how we get there yeah. in a real substantial and way. And break it down. It yeah. also was a great stage for me to find a boyfriend, if you it all was. watched. Uh, Cory Booker and I are now engaged. Uh, well. I, in my head after he picked me up because I've never been picked up. <laughs> Dude, this was the bear hug that will now go down in history because Cory Booker lifted you off your feet yes, when literally. he came out on stage. Yes, and I think I'm now the first person on a presidential stage to ever mention that I'm single um, and to then flirt with a presidential well, candidate. Well, you know, 2019, history for so many different reasons. Yes. I hate to break it to you, but... Uh, I talked to Cory Booker I about saw. his girlfriend, Rosario Dawson, yes. and he happened to volunteer some information about watching her on Jane the Virgin. Yes. Um, you can see that clip now uh, on Ant DM. Uh, check out our Twitter account for it. Um, but yeah, 
I will say the interview started off with him schooling me on Super Tramp songs. So really, we, we had a lot of rage. Of guy. We had a lot of rage. He is, I, it was we, very fun. We've met with so many of these candidates, but Mr. Yeah. Booker is a character every time. <laughs> every, every time. Well, yeah. I can't wait to see the full interview when it comes out. Let's take it to the timeline. What was your favorite moment from the LGBTQ forum? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm Or am to gam Or am to gam yeah. <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about a story that's been getting pick up all weekend. Ukraine, a phone call from Trump, and Joe Biden's son. Here's a tweet from Hayes Brown. Every time I've explained to someone in real life what we've learned over the course of the week, the response has been, what the hell? So here's all of that laid out so that you two can tell people and have them go, what the hell? <laughs> Hayes is a BuzzFeed News World senior reporter and editor and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, guys. All right, so what is the short version of the story that I'm still trying to wrap my head around, Hayes? So the shortest version of the story can give you is it seems more and more likely that President Donald Trump, in the course of trying to dig up dirt on his political opponent, former Vice President Joe Biden, both directly and indirectly pressured the government of Ukraine to dig up dirt on Biden and provide it ahead of the election, in, up to and including possibly uh, putting a hold on military aid to Ukraine as a point of leverage. So can you talk about how we uh, found out about all of this? Um, what do we know about the whistleblower and the complaint? So uh, back two weeks, two Fridays ago, September the 13th, uh, Adam Schiff, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, said that he was issuing, issuing a subpoena for a testimony from a whistleblower who was inside of the intelligence community who the inspector general of the intelligence community said was very important, was urgent, and needed to be seen by Congress. The Trump administration, though, has been blocking that whistleblower testimony from getting to Congress. So that's why Schiff had to issue this subpoena. Uh, over the course of the week, we've learned more and more about what's in this call. In first, uh, mostly through the Washington Post, we've learned that first we learned that the whistleblower was talking about a phone call that the president had that with a foreign leader that was extremely troubling. Then we learned that it had to do with Ukraine. Until finally on Friday, we learned that uh, it was President Trump talking to the president of Ukraine back in July, where he pressured, where he mentioned investigating Biden and Biden's son. Hunter Biden eight times during the course of one phone call. All of this is extremely troubling because it's the president asking a foreign leader to intervene basically in the 2020 election. Wow, that is quite something. So, Hayes, why is Hunter Biden involved, though? I understand Joe, but why Hunter, his son? So, Hunter, back in 2014, he joined the board of Ukrainian uh, natural gas company, uh, probably just because of the Biden name. He doesn't have really much, very much experience in this field, but he joined the board, and he stepped down when the president uh, began to, when the vi former vice president began to run for office. So, he, the problem, though, is that in the course of being vice president, the Obama administration was pushing for a prosecutor, the head prosecutor in Ukraine, to step down because he wasn't very good at investigating corruption, which was his main job at the time. Now, this has been spun since then uh, to say that, oh, the vice president, because his son was being investigated by this prosecutor general, uh, he pushed to get this prosecutor removed, which is clear corruption, but that's just really not the case. That's not what happened. The guy was bad at his job, and that's not according to just Joe Biden. That's according to uh, the U.S. government, other Western governments, uh, anti-corruption NGOs, all of them are in agreement that no, there was no real corruption here. Also, uh, Ukrainian officials have said we have seen no evidence of any like weird shady dealing or corruption uh, between Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and Ukraine and this company. Now, on this story, a particular interview with Giuliani uh, seemed to get a lot of uh, traction on Thursday. How do 
did Giuliani get into the mix of all this? So Giuliani is Trump's personal lawyer. Let's make that clear, personal lawyer. He's not with the campaign. He's not with the U.S. government. Trump's personal lawyer. And for months now, he's been traveling to Ukraine to try and dig up more dirt on the Bidens and been quite open about this. Back in April, he was about to make a trip there, but that got called off after the New York Times reported about it, and he kind of backed off publicly. But in private, he's still been having these phone calls. He met in uh, met with the... Uh, Top, one of the top aides to the Ukrainian president in Madrid, where he came away saying that, oh, they are going to definitely try and get to the bottom of this. Ukraine, for their part, though, has been trying to stay out of this drama. Uh, the president, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky, he doesn't want to be seen as becoming overly partisan, but he's risking uh, making the Trump administration mad if he does not go along with their desire to open a new investigation into the Bidens. Mm. So, Hayes, will Congress be able to see this whistleblower statement uh, now that the news is really at this kind of like breaking neck point? So they want it. Schiff has said, no, you have a subpoena. You have to turn this over. But the uh, administration is saying this is privileged information, that this has to do with a phone call with the president, possible national security concerns, et cetera. They haven't made exactly clear what executive, they haven't made specifically clear that they're involved executive privilege on this. And uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi over the weekend said if they, the administration doesn't turn over the uh, whistleblower's complaint, not just the transcript of the phone call that Trump had, the actual complaint from the whistleblower, they will be entering a new stage of investigation, uh, a new stage of lawlessness from the administration and move forward with investigation. So if they don't turn it over, it's looking more and more likely that the Democrats have no choice but to open impeachment hearings. Yeah, so can you just talk a little bit more about that? You mentioned uh, what Pelosi uh, had to say. I mean, what are some of the implications? You know, does it appear that uh, they are getting more serious on impeachment now? It does seem that way. Uh, Schiff came out on Sunday, and Schiff and Pelosi have been in constant communication all weekend, and he was leaning pretty far forward on it. So it does seem more likely that at least hearings are going to have to take place, because this is, again, the president of the United States trying to get a foreign leader to investigate his political opponent, uh, especially in the case where there is no evidence that there's been any wrongdoing by uh, Joe or Hunter Biden to this point. Uh, former prosecutors have said that while a case was open against this natural ga gas company, it was completely dormant by the time Biden and the rest of the Obama administration was pushing for his removal in 2016. So this really is just ex extremely political. And if Congress says, well, this is fine, we're going to let this one slide, they're basically saying it's okay for a president to reach out to China to say, hey, can you look into investigating, say, Cory Booker's whatever. And that's just a level that I don't think Democrats want to get to. Mm, okay, well now I have to say, I, I feel like if someone does say what the hell to me, I can kind of give them the gist yeah, of the story. Yeah. So Hayes, thank you so much for joining us. I wish I could be here at some point for like a happy story for you guys. I know, I know. always like, we're in trouble. Sorry. One of these days. One day, hey, one day, <laughs> maybe. All right, so here's, the, here's some treats from last night's Emmys. First up, the New York Times. I'm so overwhelmed and I'm so overjoyed to have lived long enough to see this day. At the Emmys on Sunday night, Billy Porter became the first openly gay man to win the award for best actor in a drama. Here's a tweet from The Hollywood Reporter. Most importantly, this is for the men we know as the exonerated five. When They See Us star Jarell Jerome dedicates his lead actor in a limited series win to the men wrongly accused in the Central Park Five case. Joining us now to discuss is author and Vulture TV critic Matt zoller Seitz. Good morning. Good morning. Good to have you today. So both Billy Porter and Jarell Jerome made history last night. Tell us about those moments. 
Well, Billy Porter became the first openly gay African-American actor to win an Emmy in an acting category, which is kind of astounding that it's the year 2019 and this is finally happening. But also, it's just a major, major event for that show, which I think was one of the best shows to air during the eligibility window of the Emmys. It was on my top 10 list. And it also had the number one episode on my list at the end of the year. It's it's an amazing show. And Jarrell Jerome was somebody that I was really rooting for. In fact, uh, one of the major disappointments for me of this Emmy uh, awards telecast is that when they see us, Ava DuVernay's Netflix series about the uh, Central Park Five uh, didn't get more awards. I, I mean, I, I appreciate that they distributed the awards somewhat democratically among different uh, programs, but I still just thought that she deserved best director and possibly uh, best screenplay for, for one of the episodes uh, of that series. But that being said, uh, Jarrell Jerome is the only member of the principal cast uh, playing the young men who uh, played both the teenage version and the adult version of the character, which is pretty extraordinary. And I interviewed Ava DuVernay about that for Vulture, and she talked about how he was the only person who had the physicality, in her opinion, to pull that off. And I believe that he is the youngest actor ever to win in this category, which tells you that he's probably got an amazing career ahead of him if this is how he's kicking off things in a big way. Wow. So beyond those wins, what were the other standout moments from the show? Well, I just filed a piece. I don't know how people are going to react to this, but Game of Thrones winning best drama. I know the consensus is that this was one of the weaker years for the show. And in fact, I've said that myself in in, uh, pieces on Vulture. But it's a it's outstanding drama series. And I, I can't really think of another series this year that stood out more than Game of Thrones. I mean, when it was on in the weeks leading up to it and in the weeks that it that it aired its final run of seasons, it felt like there was nothing else on television. And I don't think it was just an arbitrary decision of the content more like Vulture and BuzzFeed and Vox and other sites. Uh, I mean, people wanted this stuff. People were obsessed with this stuff and they were pouring over every detail. And I really feel like this is kind of the last show that we're all going to watch simultaneously together, like a drama where we're kind of, we watch it and then we spend the next six days talking about what we've seen. And then another episode comes up and it, it dominates our lives until it's over. Um, I thought that was great. Um, I, I was uh, surprised by the strong showing of Chernobyl, I guess in retrospect, I shouldn't have because it's got a great cast of English actors and there were so many English actors and, and English writers and directors who won awards last night that at a certain point, uh, even, even the nominees started to kind of make fun of it. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible transitional time for television, I think. And the fact that uh, Fleabag did so well, it's an Amazon prime series streaming, uh, like a lot of streaming shows, I feel like it kind of points the way towards the future where we all do watch the same shows. We don't just don't watch them all at once, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was surprised by Fleabag winning, too. I love that show, but it's incredible to see such mainstream success for Phoebe Waller-Bridge there. Uh, but, you know, beyond the awards themselves, we saw some moments of some drama and, t- and some awkwardness. Tell us about the Felicity Huffman moment. What happened there, and how are people reacting to that joke? Well, I don't know what you can really say about about Felicity Huffman and that whole situation that, that you know, lets her off the hook for it. Um, I, I, I just felt like, in general, the show... Uh, was never more ineffective and kind of kind of pathetic than it was tr- than when it was trying to be topical, whether it was the presenters or that that interstitial banter by Thomas Lennon, which even he admitted was a bad idea. Did you catch that moment? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, politics. How did they weave into the show? 
Um, really surprisingly barely at all, I thought, uh, except for the presenters. I think that I think that it came out very, very, I'm sorry, the uh, winners. I think it came out very, very strongly in the winners. Uh, Billy Porter, of course, was a standout. Uh, Michelle Williams talking about equal pay and the necessity of uh, giving uh, women uh, lead roles and then telling them yes and not fighting them on every detail uh, when they make a request that they think is going to improve their performance. And I think this kind of goes across the board for talent generally, that feeling of being listened to and heard and then having people say yes to you instead of no or we'll see is, is a really big deal. Um, and uh, and I think just generally uh, the fact that so many of these shows that were just dire, really, really, really dark shows like Chernobyl and When They See Us uh, did so well, like they were talked about. They were talked about. It wasn't just a kind of a eat your vegetables, it's good for you type of thing. People were really hanging on these shows and discussing them. And uh, I think that says a lot about the health of the medium, that, that, that uh, programs like that that are so kind of emotionally as well as aesthetically demanding are able to draw popular audiences is great. Oh, it's really interesting. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say before we, we go to our little break, but, you know, seeing all of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, the ones, that, especially these Black and Latinx folks, mm-hmm. winning and thriving and glowing last night. Like, I was on a plane during the Emmys. When I landed, I saw all the photos coming in. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, coming from Iowa where we did the yeah. film and yeah. seeing the representation of the Emmys. You know, it's a very dark world these days, but these are moments where I'm like, we're going to be okay. Encouraging. We're yeah. going to maybe yeah. be okay. <laughs> Feels really good. Feels really good. Well, later on, Alex is down with star prodigal son, actor Bellamy Young. But up next, Jerry Ferrara is here to help her with fire tweets. Welcome back. It's time for Fire Tweets, and I'm joined by actor Jerry Ferrara, who you know as Joe Proctor from Power and Turtle from Entourage. Welcome. It's good to be here. I'm excited. Yeah. So before we get into these tweets, we got to say, spoiler alert. Yes. If you have not watched last night's episode of Power, just turn off the segment here, because we're going to talk about all of it. I, yeah, I feel like everyone's <laughs> watched it, but yes, yeah, just, just for the just, three people who haven't, turn off for now and then come back and watch this later. Okay, so I'm going to read the first tweet, okay. so I'll show you how it's done. Okay. Fendi, you tweeted. Tasha needs to stop interfering and just let Ghost beat Tariq's ass one good time. It seems like the timeline is always talking about Tariq's behavior towards his parents. He he is definitely a hot button topic, for uh, lack of a better word. Uh, yeah, he's come a long way since the beginning. Tariq has matured into this almost replica of Ghost. So there's a lot yeah. of people that want Ghost to to put their hands, put his hands on Tariq. So I don't know. I like Tariq. I I I I like I like what he's doing. You just had a son. How would you handle it? I don't even want to start. I don't even want to start thinking about okay. it. I hope, I pray, we are never in any of those situations. Because I, I mean, yeah, I don't know if a stern talking to is going to do it. I don't know. True. Yeah, I don't true. know. Okay, you have this tweet. So okay, hit the button. Here we go. It. Bang. All right. Uh, T- I can't, TW2 Boom read, uh, you start watching a TV series and then you begin to like a particular character in the series. Then boom. You watch the person die in another episode. I mean, what is it like when the cast finds out who the next person to go is? It, it's weird because you get you kind of get honored the whole week because they know it's your 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 last moment. Um, oh my god! It, it really is. It, it's like a graduation of sorts. So it's it's very bittersweet. The whole week, everyone's showering oh. you with praise and love, and then you go you go do your job, and then you know, and then yeah, then it's over. Ugh. It's tough. All right, let's get to the next tweet. Noel, you tweeted. <laughs> Tommy needs to keep that same Proctor energy with Keisha. I'm just saying, what's your take on if she can handle what's going on? 
I think she can handle it. I don't, I don't like that same energy that you're referring to because that's <laughs> referring to some bad energy. Yeah, so yeah. I, I don't know. I, 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 like, I, th I think Lakeisha could handle a lot more than people are saying right okay, now. Okay, cool. All right, so for this tweet, we're both going to hit the button together, okay. but then you're going to read it. Okay, ready? Okay. One, two, three. Okay, this tweet comes from Shantra. I hereby declare September 22nd, Joseph Proctor Day. If you ain't this type of lawyer, I don't want you. Rest in peace, JP. Benny will take good care of Elisa Marie. You were a fighter till the end and beyond. Thoughts? So, like, feelings. are we gonna close streets and, like, is school gonna be I closed? Mean, is it like a snow day? Because I'm okay with that. <laughs> You're good with that. Yeah, if it's an extra holiday, kids can take off from school, I'm with it. Um, it is kind of strange to, to, to read that. It really does feel like uh, a part of my life is, yeah. is gone. So, uh, but I'll lock in that date. And I will always, you and know, be it. I'll tweet something every September 22nd. Oh, well, what has the reaction been like since last night's episode? It's, it's been wild. I mean, I woke up to uh, some, some tweets that uh, people were letting me know how they felt. And the overwhelming majority was they were sad to see him go, which means I, I did my job. You there was job. a couple of, you deserved it. <laughs> you, you were snitching. You deserved it. There was a couple of those, which it's fair. It's fine. But uh it's it's all hitting me now, you know, because yeah. I've been sitting on this since January. Right. That. So tell me a little bit about that. Like, do you feel a sense of relief now that you can talk about what happened with everyone? So much relief, because for for nine months it's been what what's going to happen with Proctor, and it's just you know it's getting crazy for everybody. I don't know who's gonna, but knowing what was going to happen, so now I'm just happy to be able to talk about it. Let's now we could discuss what happened. Mm. Now I read in an interview with uh, Courtney Kemp, uh, the show's creator, um, that. Courtney had reached out to you and said uh, about this role and said, there's a lot more to you than what we've seen from Entourage, and I want to show people that. Um, when you stepped into this role, were you thinking about, uh, you know, taking on a really different kind of character, really different tone? I mean, yeah, yeah. As an actor, that's what you want to do because you, you kind of have to show you could do more than one thing. Um, but I'll be honest, my phone wasn't necessarily ringing off the hook with people willing to give me that opportunity. Mm. So Courtney, who came in and said, you know, I think you could do drama. I think you could be this kind of gritty, shady lawyer. It was an easy decision for me because, again, she just saw something and went with her instincts. And I like to think she was right five, five, six years later. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I owe her a lot. When you're out and about, do you get recognized more as Turtle from Entourage or as Proctor from Power? It really does go like moment to moment. I've really? been walking around with my wife and my kid and, uh, you know, walking down the street and there's a bunch of guys who are yelling turtle and then we go around the block and grab a coffee and then there's a bunch of young guys who are like <laughs> a Proctor and I, I often want to be like, do you guys know about each other? This yeah. is like a whole thing. Yeah, I'm typecast twice, which I guess defeats also typecasting. typecasting. yeah. And shouldn't happen again, right? completely different roles. Yep. Well, you said you were you were a fan of the show um, even before Big joining fan. it. Um, and there have been so many uh, unexpected death this season. As a viewer, um, who are you rooting for to make it to the end? It's tough because I'm compromised, right? Because I do, I, I love <laughs> Joe Shakura's character yeah, and Tommy. Yeah. Like, it's just such a compelling character. But, I mean, he killed Proctor and my loyalty was to Ghost. So I am team, I am team Ghost. But You're man, I ghost. enjoy some, some team Tommy stuff. Yeah, so you mentioned that it's like a little bit of a graduation week when you're, uh, when you're getting, gonna get killed off, I guess, or you're leaving the show. Yeah. Um, what are you gonna miss the most? I, I really am just gonna miss the people. I am gonna miss the cast, the crew, the producers, you know, waking up every day knowing I'm gonna see these people who I would love to spend my free time with. Now we're actually on the clock getting paid to hang out, you know. And there's a lot of hard work, that being said, but I, I, I'm, gonna miss, I'm gonna miss the people. And I'm gonna miss the fans, like waking up to 
thousands of tweets of people who really <laughs> yeah, are invested yeah, in this show. Yeah. That's why you do it. You want yeah. people to care. So I'm, I'm gonna re- I'm gonna miss all of it, but those two things stand out right now. Yeah. Um, well, good news for the fans. This isn't the last that uh, they're gonna see of you on TV because you are now uh, you're gonna potentially be producing uh, a series for HBO, right? Um, yes. It's called I think Dirty Thirty um, with Courtney Kemp. Um, so you'll be behind the camera. Why did you want to switch gears? Uh, well, maybe when to switch gears was you know again not wanting to have to wait for the Courtney's of the world to come along mm. and say, hey, I think you could do more. It's kind of trying to take a little bit of my destiny in my own hands. I mean, it's no easy task. It's still going to be hard to get this show on the air. And luckily, I'm partnered with Courtney, who knows a little something about it. But it's more about just not wanting to wait for the phone to ring yeah. and hope that someone's going to see in me what she saw, because it doesn't always work that way. Yeah. Well, listen, it's been really fun getting to talk to you. Thank awesome. you so much for joining me. I just want to do it one more time. One more time. One, two, three. Well, you can watch all episodes of Power on Stars every Sunday. Coming up, we're talking about how you might be accidentally sharing more information than you realize on Instagram. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News reporter Mega Raja Kopalan. When architect and geolocation whiz Allison Killing messaged me saying it was possible to identify pedestrians' real names and track their paths through city streets using public Instagram stories, I couldn't believe it. So we set out to do it. And Mega continued, turns out it was scarily easily to do. Here's how we did it. We matched Insta stories from Times Square to streaming video feeds put up by tourism company EarthCam. Using just one hour of footage, we ID'd names, addresses, social media, etc. of six people and tracked their movements. The result is this BuzzFeed news story that used Hayes Brown as a guinea pig to identify these details. And there you can see <laughs> Hayes being tracked over the Earth Cam. What it's wild. What and and those are his Instagram stories. What Hayes doesn't realize is that we're still tracking him. You know, everywhere you're going. <laughs> everywhere he's going. Everywhere he's going. No, but seriously, like this story really impressed upon me that you know, like whenever you're posting your location uh-huh. in your Instagram stories, especially in these really identifiable locations, it's real easy to find you. Yes, and also that Instagram does that story feed and they just pull. If yes, if also that. If your thing is public, if your, your account's public, they'll just pull your stories and throw it. So I was out of town. Of course, we were in Iowa, but on my way back, I went to Chicago. I didn't tell many people. I wanted to see a few friends. I went to dinner and my girlfriend took a picture, didn't even tag me, and it got pulled into the Chicago yeah. story. And guess who got clocked? Me, because I saved my the photo. Chicago people. They I, saw that you were in Chicago. Exactly. Yeah. I didn't post that I was in Chicago until I was leaving Chicago, because I didn't want to like deal with people wanting to hang out. I love all of you. I'm coming back in a few weeks. Don't <laughs> worry. But I also get nervous about you know posting in real time because like you know people there are people that have very bad like ambitions around you. Yeah. If you're not home yeah. or you're somewhere, that some things can happen and it's scary. So I have to say, even though as a journalist, I'm fairly vigilant about uh, that kind of privacy stuff. Um, Instagram is one place where I definitely let it slide a little bit yep. and then I was thinking after reading this story just like how much personal data you're giving with each photo because mm-hmm. you're, you know you're not only giving your photo of where you are like then you're posting your caption which mm-hmm. can also allude to who you're with and what you're doing or you're tagging people and then you can also actually tag the location so yeah so it just made me think like going forward I'm not going to post what I'm doing yeah. at that exact moment because it would be ex- like pretty easy yeah. to find me and then combined with these uh earth cams yeah like, and it's, it's all there. Yeah, exactly. And I've actually had a situation, I do not think it was tied to Instagram, but there was an incident when I lived in Chicago, actually, where I was, like, posting a lot on, I think, Facebook when I was out of town. Remember when it was cool to check into airports? And we'd be like, I'm traveling from mm-hmm. here to there. Yeah. My grandmother called me and yelled at me one day, and she's like, someone's going to rob you one day. And my house did get broken into one day. Maybe they were able to figure that out. But it was like, oh, right, there are people watching this, and people could just, like, 
figure this shit out and it's over for you. And not in a bad way, but they could just be tracked. Yeah. So, you know, it is something we should be all thinking about as we're putting out so much content. Because some of these people, I have a friend out there who posts every little thing she does all day. And you know, if someone wanted to do something bad, it could happen. Like, this is why we don't get to have nice things because there are bad faith actors on social media who ruin it for everyone. So let's take it to the timeline. Are you gonna change any of your social media settings for better privacy? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm All right, well up next, Alex sits down with Madam President Bellamy Young. Welcome back. I'm here with the star of Scandal, Criminal Minds, and the new series, Prodigal Son, Bellamy Young. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> so people are so excited about this show. It actually, uh, the first episode came out briefly, I think, because of all the excitement yeah. about it. Um, what appealed to you about working on a show about serial killers? Oh my goodness. Well, the first thing, when they gave me this offer, which God bless them forever, um, they, first they said Michael Sheen, and I was like, I'll do it. And then they said New York, and I was like, no, really, I'll do it. And then they were like, we'll read the script. And then the script was unbelievable. I thought yeah. I might never get lucky like this again. You know, Scandal was such a tremendous gift. The role of Melly was like winning the lottery. And as a, you know, 40-something woman, you think, well, you know what? That might be it. I might, but I got to be Melly. But man, Jessica yeah. is, gives Melly a run for her money. So tell us a little bit about Jessica. How would you describe her? <sighs> um, debauched, hilarious, broken, <laughs> boozy, um, trying. She's, you know, uh, they carted off Michael Sheen, my my husband. They carted him off to Hannibal Lecter land. He's in prison, but she's been on the Upper East Side trying to live through it and raise her children. So. She's got some battle scars mm. and like a whole, you know, box of barbiturates. So, you know, it's, <laughs> she's covering all bases. Yeah, an interesting mix. Well, you mentioned Michael Sheen. Um, also, Tom Payne plays your son. Yeah. They're both British ac actors, but they have the most flawless American accents. Yeah. What was it like watching them transform into their characters? I can tell you because um, Michael and I were not. The table read was in New York. We were in Austin for South By. And so we were sort of squeezed thigh to thigh trying to share a laptop uh, computer to Skype into the table read. And um, as Michael's first scene came up, I could feel the atoms in his thigh change. Whoa. And then he like did his work and he's doing this amazing thing that he, with uh, Martin Bright, because um, he's written, he's just written a, a whole movie about serial killers. So he's sort of been sitting in mm -hmm. it for a while. And then the scene ended and I felt it left his, I feel, felt it leave his atoms. And then he's like, I'm not on for eight pages. I'm gonna go to the bathroom. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. You're like, God. then that's it. <laughs> He's a genius. And also, Tom's amazing too. Yeah. Well, I also thought it was funny. Tom plays your son, but he's like not that much younger than you? Like, what is it like playing the parent of someone it's who is actually... It's mathematically possible. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for saying it shouldn't be. <laughs> well, I want to get to uh, some tweets because your fans are very dedicated. They and, are. Uh, they tweeted some questions for you. <gasps> um, so we have one from Sam who says, what was your audition process like for Prodigal Son? Sam, hello. I love you. I'm sending you love. Um, uh, uh, I didn't have to audition is the bottom line. I... Um, was so lucky that this job was offered to me. So I'm I'm a tremendously, yeah, just very, very lucky girl. It was a phone call. I missed the first phone call because I was in the shower. I called back and they were like, where were you? We have an offer for you. <laughs> and I was, again, I said, I'm Michael Sheen, I'll do it. So <laughs> what do you say? Like, it. I'm so sorry I missed your yeah, call. I feel I like I would know. be so, like, Your oh my gosh. never I, like, really calls call. unless it's like terrible it. news or maybe great news. And so I was like, oh. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have another tweet from Caitlin. Yeah. 
a little bit about something we talked about, but do you see the similarities between Melly and Jessica? Ah, uh, Caitlin. Um, I keep looking at the wrong camera. I'm not good at this like you are. <laughs> uh, hello. It's nice to see you, Caitlin. Um, yeah, totally, totally. They each have um, like a lioness sort mm. of energy. You know, they will rip your face off if they choose to. <laughs> um, but uh, Jessica has a bit more of an edge. Um, she's really been through a much harder road. Mm. Uh, but in terms in terms of their fierce loyalty, their um, ferocious mothering, they, they really do have a, a good Venn diagram mm. and a really good bar. Mm. Well, we got to talk a little bit about Scandal. <laughs> yeah! Um, of course, it came to an end after seven seasons. What have you missed the most about the show? Just the people. Being yeah. with the people every day of my life. Like, every day, every day, squeezed into a set or on into a hair and makeup trailer. But we have this ridiculous text thread that we, you know, we're always on together, sending pictures or dirty jokes. <laughs> yesterday was Katie's birthday, so oh. we were we had a lot of fun with that. But yeah. um, And we go see everything of everybody's, We you know... I, Carrie show, Tony show, like everybody you see, you just support. So it's it's still family. Yeah. Well, while you were doing Scandal, you were also actually politically active in real life. Um, yeah. In 2016, uh, you helped support Hillary Clinton in yeah. North Carolina, right? Um, do you have eight any plans? States. I did eight states. Eight states. Eight yeah. states. So yeah. do you have any plans um, to lend your support to any of the candidates for 2020? Happily. I mean, I feel like we all should. Democracy is a verb. It's just us and we the people. We have to get out there and do it. So my voice is no more important than anybody else's. And so I encourage everybody to get there out there and raise their voice for their candidate of choice. Are you thinking that eventually you will go to various states once, uh, you know, there's a nominee or something like that? If they would like me to, I'm available. <laughs> noted, noted. <laughs> well, let's talk about um, your life beyond television. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you also sing. Yeah. And, you know, you shared the big screen with so many amazing stars. But if you could get in the studio with any <gasps> artist, who oh would it be? Oh, my gosh. I don't even know how to answer that. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, some of my favorite albums are like, they're not available to sing with anymore, like Jeff Buckley Grace mm. or, you know, uh, Rumors Forever, Rumors favorite album, uh, Joni Mitchell Blue. Oh, yeah. So, you know, like that. But I don't know who I'd say. I think if, if I got to be on a tour with somebody, like a stadium gig, like a dream job, uh, Janelle Monet or Bruno Mars. Oh my gosh. Like yeah. they give a show. That, that would be Do you incredible. Know? Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, that'd be sick, crazy fun. Is there any chance you'll be singing on Broadway in the future. If they will let me, I will come tonight. Okay. Yeah, not tonight. I'm going to live tweet. <laughs> I'll come tomorrow. Not, not actually tonight. They're but dark. It's just, Monday. You know. But otherwise, anytime. Yeah. Well, speaking of um, musicians, you're actually with a musician. I am. Do you ever jam together? Do you make music? Always. Like, yeah. 100%. We need to buy a keyboard for this apartment because I don't have it. <laughs> but at home, I have a piano and a guitar, and he always has all his percussion. He's by trade a percussionist, yeah. but um, can play, you know, everything. And he's always got toys. And, yeah. Of course, he could make that mug sound, you know, perfect. But I'm also guessing in New York City, you have to be more cognizant of the noise, especially with like bit. percussion because yeah. it's a much smaller yeah. you know, space. Yeah. Well, he, the, what he's touring with right now is more of like a cajon based setup. So it's uh, uh, more storytelling than like drum kit, bangity, bangity, bangity. Mm. Yeah. I've seen you, no, you've talked about your relationship a little bit in other interviews. How do you decide where the line is about like how much to share about what's going on in your personal life? Oh, oh, you mean in public? Yeah, I was like, yeah. between me and Pedro? Why, why would I keep anything from him? Um, uh, uh, what's comfortable? I guess my, I've gotten, I've made so many mistakes, and I won't say that I won't make more, but uh, I, now I have a little bit more of intuition to say, not that. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. he's also a, made of light and love, so I, you know, 
a trust to talk about That's him. So sweet. You know, yeah. 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 Well, listen, this has been so fun talking to you. Alex, I've loved it. Yes, I'm really looking forward to seeing the series. So thank you so much for I hope me. you love it. Everybody join us tonight. We're gonna have so much fun. Live tweet with us. It's gonna be a great ride. You can watch Bellamy on the premiere of Prodigal Son tonight at 9 p.m. 8 p.m. Central on Fox. Up next, Zach is chatting with author Edwidge Dedekap. Here's a treat from Julia Alvarez. Edwidge Dentica's Everything's Inside is a Gym. I've read many of these stories before, but they are rich enough to merit many rereadings collected together. They build into a novelistic vision of the Haiti diaspora, leaves behind, but will always carry within. And I'm excited to talk with Edwidge today, author of Everything Inside, about this new book. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Of course, of course. And I've been so excited to talk to you about this beautiful, beautiful book that you've, you've given us to the world. So what were the themes you were looking to put together when you approached this new project? Well, I had, um, as uh, Julio so kindly said, been working on these stories for about 12 years. And over time, I realized there were certain threads through, like, um, love and their stories about Haitian immigrants mm -hmm. for sure. So immigration and travel and separation, but mostly really love, um, family love, romantic love, different kinds of love, but very complicated love. Mm -hmm. And also the book, you've written a lot of characters coping with death, which I mm -hmm. think is like an opposite of love. It also deals, you can have love and death together. Do you think writing and reading about grief can make it easier to deal with as an emotion? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, I wrote a book called The Art of Death, the mm -hmm. book that came before this book, mm -hmm. after my mom passed away. And I really, I, I was looking for a way in and a way to process my grief because we don't really have like circular rituals for yeah. grief in this culture. So I started reading books that like Toni Morrison's books mm -hmm. and uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And, and I think really literature can give us a way into grief that mm -hmm. is complex and layered and that makes us feel a lot less alone. Mm, for sure, and I think it's also a place where we can learn to deal with this process of grief that is so universal all the time. Absolutely. Um, so in your latest project or book, uh, you write this quote that I just wanna read. Uh, there are loves that, are, that outlive lovers. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear where that comes from and what inspired that and what you're hoping people take away. Because I keep seeing it popping up and I just wanna like put on a wall somewhere for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I was thinking, I mean, it goes back to this question of grief, right? Like mm -hmm. when we lose, lose someone, whether they're no longer with us mm -hmm. in the body, you know, whether they're transitioned or whether they was just kind of walked away and are having a different life than the ones they had with us. You know, there's something that that, that lingers in us, we hope, right? And so mm -hmm. that love outlives that person, you know, and I feel like, I mean, that whether that's our mother, whether that's some, you know, whoever had a, had implanted something in mm -hmm. us, but they've moved on, but they left a seed in us. So that that's where that comes from, that there are loves that outlive the lovers. Yeah, and do you think that's helping people when you think about grief, like move through grief? Because I think like when something bad happens to us, what I always think about is, you know, that person was here and they made us who we are, exactly. and that's what you should hold on to. Is that what you're kind of getting at? Absolutely. Like I think every encounter we have, and whether it's in uh, like in the flesh or in the, the arts, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's how we try to encapsulate in that, like every encounter leaves a bit of that person or that experience in us. And hopefully that helps us grow and, and become you know, better people. For sure, for sure. Well, speaking of experiences, I wanna ask about one of yours. Um, you, know, you went through a form of family separation. Your parents mm -hmm. uh, moved from Haiti to the US for several years before having you and your brother join. What have been the lasting impacts of that, especially when considering what we're talking about today in the political environment? Yeah, well, my parents made a very, you know, kind of, 
informed and a planned choice. You know, they left Haiti and moved to the U.S. and left me with my aunt and uncle. Mm -hmm. And um, and the, the families that are coming to the border, um, the families that are taking their children across oceans, they're also making a choice, mm -hmm. but they're making a very desperate choice. Yeah. They're, you know, the, the poet Watson Shire says, you know, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. Mm -hmm. And so every parent that makes that choice is, is it's a heart-rendering choice for them, but yeah. they feel like they, they have to make this choice, otherwise their children will be in a, a worse position. And my parents were similar to that. And so every day when I hear about the news, mm -hmm. when to see the way the children are treated, some children have died, and mm -hmm. you know the way their parents don't know where they are, the parents are deported, the children are here. So, I mean, to me, it just brings back like how hard it is for a parent to make that choice and mm -hmm. then to face those circumstances. If you imagine the guilt and, yeah. you know, because that that's not really what they were hoping for. Yeah, and as someone that's personally experienced this, what do you want to see change with our immigration system, especially as we're considering a new president? Um, I think immigration reform, certainly, because we have um, nearly a million young people who, childhood, you know, DACA, deferred mm -hmm. childhood arrivals, who, who, were born, you know, they were born in another country, but they came here as babies and young people, and now they're in limbo. You have people who are, have received temporary protected status who are in limbo, and then you have so many people living in the shadows. And in the time we live in, it's so much more. You know, the the rules are changing all the time. There's a rule mm -hmm. that's going into effect where people who seek public services for their sick children or or if they, you know, if they want food stamps for their U.S.-born children, but if they have a different status, they can. They, that means they might not get their green card. Mm -hmm. So, rather than improving the status of immigrants, it's you know, it's 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 getting worse and worse for immigrants. Yeah. So, and it's getting scarier for a lot of families. Mm -hmm. So that you know, I I would love to for everybody who's running and everybody mm -hmm. who who is in this country to something to think about. These are our brothers and sisters mm -hmm. and. And they want the same thing for their children that my parents wanted for me, that yeah. your parents wanted for you. Yes, and I think your work talking about the Haitian diaspora is really going to help people understand that these people aren't just statistics or numbers trying to cross a border. But they are complicated people that are just searching for a home or love. Yeah, so, so. and it's not just the Haitian diaspora. It's, it's, there's so many yes. of, of you know, immigrant families in the same position. Yes, for sure, for sure. Well, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this new book, which everyone should go out and buy immediately, immediately. Uh, and good luck with everything coming forward. I just always, I know everyone's very anxious for you your next project every time. Thank well, you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Everything Inside is available wherever books are sold. Up next, we're talking about the comic series Safe Sex. Here's a tweet from Tina Horn. Start spreading the news. My queer leather sex worker rebel dystopian sci-fi action adventure Safe Sex will start its original series run with Image Comics in September. Like all ambitious, invincible creatures, she's a Virgo after all that, honey. Tina Horn joins me now to talk about her new comic, Safe Sex. A Virgo. <laughs> I, I actually have to say, I, I'm a Virgo, and I saw the September release date, and I got excited, uh, but that's it's actually fake news. She's actually a Libra. <laughs> because issue one is coming out on Wednesday, uh, September 25th, so cuspy. We stand, we stand corrected on that one. Well, um, folks may know your work from um, your writing and also uh, your podcast, which is about sex and kink. Um, how did you come to write this series? You know, an editor who'd listened to my podcast, Why Are People Into That, reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to write a comic book. And so much of my work is nonfiction and about 
sexual politics and sex worker rights and kink cultures. And what nobody realized is that I'm actually a lifelong comic book fan and as well as a fan of genre fiction like sci-fi and horror and even like romance and erotica. So it actually, I was used to professionalizing things that bring me pleasure as a sex worker. So I just uh, was like, well, I guess this sort of mass entertainment sci-fi is uh, the last vestige of something that I I hadn't (laughs) professionalized. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it came quite naturally to me, but I had a lot of help. Yeah. Well, because I imagine that you're writing and then somebody is then doing the art and kind of walking you through it. Yes, yes. I am not a visual artist, so I have had an amazing team of so many different artists working on the interiors of the comic and the covers and even, you know, the the lettering is an art unto itself and the design and all the back matter we've made to look like a zine. So, I, yeah, I mean, you can't make a comic without visual artists. So it's a collaborative medium in that sense, and that's been really fun. So um, we mentioned some of the themes and genres that it touches on. What is Safe Sex about? Safe Sex takes place in a draconian, sort of dystopian America, although maybe not that dystopian, maybe a little bit just uh, based on how America really is for some of us, where, case in point, sex and any kind of transgressive sexual expression has been surveilled and policed and bureaucratized basically out of existence. And so a group of queer sex workers who have a little collective sort of underground culture called the Dirty Mind are rebelling and fighting back and trying to take the power back from this ultra-conservative American government. Yeah, I mean... uh, (laughs) Like we say dystopian, right? You know, yeah. But that's, yeah. you know, that is the point of dystopia yeah. is to satirize the way that the world really is and even to show maybe people who are not touched by certain kinds of oppression how horrific it feels yeah. to be the victim of that level of sort of institutionalized oppression and horror. Well, clearly, I mean, it has already resonated with people, even though it doesn't come out yet, because it's sold sold out its first run. Tell me a little bit about this, and how do you think that speaks to the appetite that people have right now for authentic stories about sex workers? Totally, yeah, and stories, I mean, authentic in the sense that there are stories about sex workers by sex workers, you know, in, in this case, me, and... Uh, you know, I think that it does exactly as you say speak to an appetite that that people have for uh, sex work creators being out and and sex work subjectivity. I just saw Hustlers yesterday with a bunch of other sex workers, and the success of that movie I think really speaks to that. We're tired of having other people tell our stories, and we're also tired of being reduced to metaphors in other people's stories, or giving a little bit of an edge or a little bit of danger when really, actually, we have rich and interesting lives and 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 a lot to fucking say. So yeah, the first print run uh, sold out, and Image ordered a second print run before issue one even comes wow. out, uh, which is pretty rare. So I'm feeling really stoked. Yeah. So you mentioned um, Image is now uh, the publisher. Um, previously, this was for Vertigo at DC Comics, um, and they shut down, actually. Um, how has that changed the the comic landscape? As someone who doesn't know that much about different genres and how the comic landscape works at all, can you talk a little bit about like where this all fits in? Totally. I mean, listen, I grew up on 
all kinds of comics, uh, but I really, especially as a teenager in the 90s, loved Vertigo books. And so when Vertigo asked me to develop this series, I was so stoked. And then when Vertigo decided to shudder and just all of those books became DC, that sort of coincided with me taking the book over to Image. And Image really makes the kind of books that safe sex encompasses or or uh, embodies, I guess I should say, which is like cerebral sci-fi and high concept action adventure that is really explicit and, uh, you know, that has a lot of explicit sex and a lot of just like weird <laughs> and explicit <laughs> themes. So um, I, th- I think that, I think I ended up in the right place. Yeah, yeah. So what are you hoping folks get out of it when it comes out on Wednesday and they have a chance to open it up and read it and look at the images? I, I mean, I think... I hope that people are entertained, you know? I mean, as as you know, as a journalist, journalism can be entertaining, but it is fun to write fiction and to write fight scenes and to write romantic scenes and to write, you know, uh, uh, fights and makeups and breakups between friends and to write about love and joy and celebration and to make aesthetic decisions in collaboration with artists. So I hope that people are entertained. I hope that people, you know, uh, absorb my subliminal political agenda <laughs> um, while they're being entertained. Uh, but first and foremost, I, I want uh, people to feel the thrills and chills. And uh, yeah, I want it to, I want them, I want them to feel it in their bodies. Yeah. So much of my work is about making people feel things yeah. in well, their bods. Well, I think that is a great note to end on. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Alex. And Safe Sex Hits Shelves this Wednesday. Up next, we're reading your tweets. Welcome back, y'all. It's now time for At Us. And before we get into your tweets, I just have to say, seeing Madam President from Scandal. I know. With you, she is so presidential as a person, yeah. period. I was like, girl, you got my vote. and You're not even running. And also, like, so lovely and so fun. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the show is just so of the moment in terms mm-hmm. of the interest in serial killers yeah. right now and true crime. I love true crime. Yeah. yeah. The old true crime reporter. I'm going to tune you in know? now because I did not know she was in it. So now. Yeah. I have something to watch. Well, here are your tweets. Here's one from Simi C- uh, Martinez. Tweeted this after our conversation about the Emmys. UK shows are just better. Fleabag is pretty perfect. Killing Eve and Years and Years is incredible. Also, yes. I mean, that's tough to dispute. Like, Years and Years. I mean, warning, do not watch Years and Years unless you want to. to have an anxiety attack. Because I was, like, really messed up over it for a long time. Okay. Because it's, uh, it's... I don't... I mean... I'm compelled, but also, like, I, you know, I am someone who watches The Handmaid's Tale, so. Oh, then you'll be great. You know, they're both, and, like, kind of prophetic shows. Great, like, okay, Like, you are seeing cool. the future, cool, cool, like, this cool. is what's going to happen. Okay. Um, and then also, while we've been doing the show, Frozen 2's trailer just dropped, I, which is exciting. People are excited about it. I do not yeah. have a child, and I've never seen it, but I do follow it closely because people really want Elsa to be a lesbian. And there were rumors that she'd come out as a lesbian, and this, Disney's not going to do that. Y'all need to let it go. Like, that's the no. song. And you know, <laughs> let it go. Wait, it was not That planned. was like too, a not little planned. too, too perfect. But people you know? have always read into her story as an allegory for like being queer and discovering it and realizing it's more powerful than you ever imagined and stepping into your truth. So. Which, which also just goes to show, give us anything, especially give Zach any topic and he will give you the LGBTQ close reading yes. of and what it I, is. You sit so. down over a martini with me, you'll leave realizing that the entire world is queer and that straightness is actually dying. 
it's going away. So sorry, not sorry. sorry. Well, thank you to our guests, Hayes Brown, Matthew Zoller-Seitz, Edwidge Danticat, Tina Horn, Jerry Ferrara, and Bellamy Young. And we will be back here tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. And all week long, we will be showing you clips of our interviews in Iowa. Have a great rest of your day.